We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Elbridge Colby. He's a, the principal or a principal at the Marathon Initiative and also the author of Strategy of Denial, a very important, fantastic book you should check out. It's coming out in paperback in September. Bridge, thank you so much for joining the show. Great to be with you, Emily. Yeah, you, you, your your expertise is so timely right now, Bridge. Um, because, yes, as we're as we're taping this uh, episode, we've just marked the one year anniversary of America's withdrawal from Afghanistan. We are mired in conflict now, a, a ground war in Europe, and the threat of China continues to rise and rise and rise. And I, I want to start, Bridge, by asking you. With this last year in the rearview mirror, uh, with Afghanistan now under Taliban rule and with everything that 20-year war meant uh, to the world and to the United States, uh, it, when our, our sort of morale as a country, it feels like it's been hammered. Um, how does this, uh, how is this affecting the way uh, we we fund our military? How is this affecting the way we approach uh, different international conflicts. I know you've been involved in these debates on the right um, about what we can and should do outside of you know our borders. Uh, how do you think this conversation is evolving in a sort of post-Afghanistan world? Well, um, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, I think I, I talk a lot about this sort of formal strategy, if you will, like the geopolitics and the military sort of side. But I think if I understand you, what what you're getting at is a really important point, which is a kind of, I would say, a fatigue and a, and a, a profound skepticism on the part of the American people. And frankly, particularly on the right and particularly among the kind of people who, frankly, you know, who themselves or their family or friends have served uh, in the military and other, you know, and other parts of the of the government and so forth. And. You know, there's a fundamental problem here, which is that I profoundly sympathize with that fatigue and that and that that skepticism because it's well deserved. I mean, I think it, it, it infuriates me, honestly, that Washington essentially and, you know, many of the people and institutions that were ascendant, uh, you know, over the last 30 years, you know, essentially squandered um, the willpower and, and sort of, you know, resolve to sacrifice of you know a, a broad swath of the American people, and and they also kind of degraded the 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 credibility that the American government, the American political system had had restored after Vietnam, when it was really at a nadir in the seventies and early eighties. I mean, if you go back and you watch the movie Stripes, you can get an idea of like how bad it was. But that had had been recovered, you know, with great effort. I mean, this is a part of the Reagan administration that we forget. Reagan has been kind of like. There was definitely what we would now think of as a kind of neoconservative element to Reagan, but I think there was also a sort of realist and, and a little and a sort of a culture warrior element too. I mean, you know, Reagan was the president when the famous Weinberger slash Powell doctrine was elucidated, which is like basically like an incredibly high standard for military intervention. The, you know, Reagan obviously intervened in, in in Lebanon, but then pulled pulled the troop, the Marines out. But, you know, the major military operation under Reagan was Granada, which was like smashing this tiny little island in the Caribbean to sort of get the American military back on its feet. But but that was really squandered, particularly, you know, after 2001, 2003 in particular. So there's but that's all that all said that is in our system. And, and, and it's 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 very genuine. It's very real. It's very reasonable. On the other hand, the world is not simply standing still. 
right? There are objective threats out there that are profoundly real, and, the, and by far the most significant of them is China. And so this, this, this war weariness and this skepticism is sort of peaking at precisely the time when we need to um, you know, be resolute and have a kind of peace through, peace through strength attitude. And I, you know, I say this as somebody who's on the dovish side of a lot of debates in the 2000s and the 2010s, but now we need a, a firm line. And so there's this, there's this quandary, and that's a lot of what I'm trying to do, actually, particularly right now, is to try to explain that. Because, I mean, whatever the merits we sort of, sort of, you know, of, or the demerits, I should say, of the decisions of the last 20 years, we can't allow them to hobble us at this critical juncture going forward when our, when our profound interests are really at stake. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was asking about, actually. And it, it, I saw a uh, tweet from our friend Rebecca Heinrichs, um, who replied to a thread that, that you were in. You had had a conversation um, with some folks who are, are definitely more skeptical of intervention. And Rebecca said something like, tell them that, you know, spending on our military is not neoconservatism, Bridge. Um, and I imagine you had, you've had a lot of those conversations uh, in recent years. And I know you focus on strategy, but I also wonder, I mean... What do you, what is it for those folks that are completely exasperated with, you know, America's exploits abroad and with foreign intervention in general, uh, when we're looking directly at China, the, I guess, national conservatism movement um, shares a lot of the concerns um, that, you know, even neoconservatives have when it comes to China and, and certainly realists um, and, and other folks who are concerned about it. What is your kind of case for why Taiwan in particular, the sort of imminent threat to Taiwan is something that requires uh, intense attention on the part of the United States? It, well, great question. I'm, and this is, this is the nub of the concern. And, and really the answer is about China and what it will mean to live in America. So like, you know, I think you mentioned, uh, or we were discussing a thread I did, I think uh, last earlier this month of, of August about, you know, what's in it for America. And I've actually been th- thinking of this, this would be my next book, but for a variety of reasons, I haven't partially my own inadequacy and like thinking about economics and stuff like that. But like, you know, to me, like Pelosi's visit is a complete red herring. And then like, you know, John Garamendi and like Ed Markey going, this is not a putting your flags in your Twitter bio kind of situation. This is very concretely and directly in America's interest. And what it has to do is with China's gaining of a dominant economic position over Asia. And from that position, it will clearly have a disastrous impact on our life at home. And if we, especially people who are on the right side of the spectrum and, you know, the new right or whatever you want to call it, people who are inclined that way as I am, we have to have, and and, and this is the thing about this, this perspective is we don't ignore power. Like, like, you know, we're not like what Michael Kinsley said, disciples of the church of greed. We're not flat earth, Tom Friedman, people who think that politics doesn't matter and trade and economics. No, the whole point of the movement is like, you got to have the power and you got to think critically and realistically about social, you know, coalitions and economic interest groups and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. You know what the biggest entity, most powerful entity in the world, other than the United States is the people's Republic of China. And like, frankly, it could be communist or not. I think it makes it a lot worse the fact that it's Marxist-Leninist, but like it almost, and I mean, in strict realist terms, it doesn't really matter, but what they're, I mean, they're not even, they're not even like, like lying about it anymore or hiding it. They basically want to be the dominant world power and, and run the, the world economic system around them. And, and, and again, like for the new right, it should, this is not a hard sell because people understand 
that if you have geopolitical and sort of high political power, the economy is shaped around you, right? I mean, this is the source of the idea that like industrial policy is necessary in a world in which other countries are doing industrial policy, right? We've gotten past the sort of brain dead, you know, sort of super neoclassical economics idea that every that politics doesn't matter. So like, yeah, so if the most powerful political entity in the world is the People's Republic of China, they're going to like, even if they were just nice about it, they, it would still mean a lot of damage to our, our prosperity. And of course, again, our prosperity and our liberty are so clearly tied. And again, I don't need to, I don't think I need to convince people like, look at the social media companies, look at people getting fired for saying heretical, but often true things on Twitter. I mean, free speech, right? It shouldn't necessarily matter if it's true, right? That's the whole point, but that's a whole separate issue. But like the point is we need to maintain the power. And why is Taiwan important? Taiwan is important because we will very, we will take a huge setback in our ability to prevent China from dominating Asia if we lose Taiwan. It sounds kind of crazy, but when you, and, I, and years, you know, 10 years ago, I was not clear on the issue to my, myself, but the more I've thought about it, the more I've looked at it, the more I've spent time in the, in the region and so forth, the, the more I see it. And here's like, it, it's pretty basic, right? The, yeah, the Pacific Ocean, the Singaporean government sometimes likes to say, well, the Pacific Ocean is big enough for the Americans and the Chinese. And it's like, well, if you look at a map, you know, it's like most of the important stuff is over on the West side, right? Like in the middle is like Wake and Midway. And like, you know, the Hawaiian Islands, like, so it's basically over there is what I think of as like the decisive theater. That's where things are going to be settled. And if the Chinese can dominate that, they've got upwards of 50% of global GDP. And by the way, the Europeans and the Middle Easterners and the Latin Americans and the Africans will fall in line because they're fractious and weaker, right? So if that's the case, how do we do it? We we have what I call an anti-hegemonic coalition. This is not a liberal crusade. This is not, you know, Tony Blinken going on about the rules-based international order. This is a hard-nosed coalition that's bound together by our shared interests in preventing China from dominating Asia. And that means, of course, Japan, Taiwan, I'll get to it in a sec, South Korea, hopefully, Australia, but also India, Vietnam, which is run by a communist government. I hate communism, but, you know, like Richard Nixon was willing to work with Mao Zedong. So like that, there's, there's a lot we can, we can work with here. The problem is Taiwan is really important for this coalition. One, it's just really militarily important. And this is also a, a critical thing, like, and I think also for the you know people on our kind of part of the spectrum, is like, we don't want to get in ground wars. Like, we don't want to do Vietnam again, or ideally Korea again. We want to have the, the, the battle line be drawn across water. It sounds kind of simplistic, but like, it, you know, huge Eurasian land powers. Part of the reason they're authoritarian is because you've got threats all around. You have to have a huge army, et cetera, et cetera. We're basically kind of an island. Naval aerospace power is high technology, high capital input. It tends to be more consistent with a freer society. So like, you know, if we, if we lose Taiwan, they're breaking through there. We're going to have to compensate by, you know, basically become trying to become begging to become, allies with a lot of these other countries to keep this coalition going. The other thing is that um, Taiwan is really important to other countries making decisions about whether it's prudent to work with us. And again, this gets into the credibility stuff, which is dangerous to help to get us into Vietnam. You know, the neoconservatives love to go on like with expansive definitions of credibility. No, mine is like, I would say it's a kind of moderate version of credibility. It's not all of our commitments are connected. I thought, you know, we should have gotten out of Afghanistan. I didn't think we did it well. But, you know, we can we can not do things that we said we can do and actually benefit. But 
On the other hand, credibility does matter in a contextual kind. I mean, the example I like to use is if you want to get a mortgage, you got to get a credit report, right? So like if you're in, if you're in Japan, but more even more like if you're in the Philippines or Vietnam and you're saying, should I work with the Americans? Should I let, let them build a base here? Should I let them deploy forces here? Should I fight with them? You know, yeah, you don't want to live under Chinese domination, but you also don't want to get crushed by China and lose out on all the goodies that China has to offer. So it's a very delicate balance. And so we need to be seen as strong and we need to be seen as reliable. And Taiwan is really important in that respect. And the critical thing here, Emily, and this is what drives me crazy, is this is a remediable problem that could probably be done by like, honestly, like less than $50 billion, which sounds like a lot of money it is, but like compared to what the government is spending and what the defense department spends, I mean, it's just like, I can't believe that we're letting this... Like we need to basically defeat a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, which is, you know, it's kind of like the Battle of Britain level. It's not D-Day. You know, it's like you sink, you sink the fleet, you shoot down the aircraft or even better, you, you persuade them that that's what's going to happen and they don't try because the key thing is to make it not crazy for the American people to do it. But here's the flip side. Just let me bear with me a second. No, I, I, am, I, am, I am worried that there are a lot of people who think like, and not just kind of, you know, national conservatives or new right kind of like neocon blobby centrist types who are like, I don't think we can do Taiwan. Huge mistake because, and I mean, we, we, we may put ourselves in that position where we have no choice, but it's going to be really bad because what's going to happen there? Well, I mean, if we just like don't fight for Taiwan at all, then countries in the region are going to be like, holy bleep. Like I really got to rethink everything. And by the way, the Chinese who have already been developing a military to project military power way beyond Taiwan. Like they're trying to build a base in like Atlantic coast of Africa. They're building aircraft carriers. They're building space systems. These are the things you build if you want to project power far and wide. So like, don't delude yourselves that the Chinese are like, oh yeah, we're just settled going to Taiwan. They don't even like pretend to say that anymore. They used to say that, but didn't mean it. But like, okay, now they don't say it, right? So if we don't fight for Taiwan, it's like, whoa. And then we're, we're, the, the thing is, we're going to have to do crazy stuff to get people to believe us. So like, just to give an historical analogy, in the case of the Korean War, when we were totally unprepared and everybody was like, whoa, these guys may be an empty suit. We ended up, we went, our defense spending went to like 12 or 13% of GDP, like crazy levels, you know? And we had, you know, deployed much more nuclear weapons to Europe and all this kind of stuff. That's a sort of an idea of when you get caught, forgive me with your pants down a little bit. Like, it's not like, it's not like it's going to be over and then there's going to be a new line. No, no, no. <laughs> and the same kind of goes if we get crushed. Um, so like the, the, you know, and we're not going to be able to bring like this idea that we're going to be able to bring back, you know, reshore semiconductors and we'll be fine. Like we just pull back our horns, like, come on, people again, go back to the political power and economic power. So we pull back from the Western Pacific and we just like, stop, you know, we basically stop contesting Chinese hegemony over Asia. And by the way, then the Chinese are like gatekeepers to the world's largest market. And of course the Germans well known for their willingness to take on, you know, Russia and China. No, they're going to like play ball. They're going to orient their economies. They're not going to like fuck the Beijing. And so we're going to have like, right now we've got 20% of global GDP, but over time, all of the like commanding heights of the global economy are going to go to China, obviously. Right. I mean, they already are in some areas like you top universities, like much more progress. So it's like we're going to be a shrinking and they're going to have an incentive to push us down because we're resisting them. So we're going to get poorer. We're going to get less free. And autarky is going to be terrible. I mean, we've never had autarky. I mean, it's it's not as bad as being like blown up or conquered, but it's like definitely not what I think we should be aiming for. What we should be aiming for is a military that can if, you know, 
ideally deter, but if necessary, defeat a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, then the system is like a virtuous cycle, which is like, hey, we can believe the Americans, they, they're not going to like, you know, march on Beijing, but they don't need to, We're, we can stand with them, and then we need to do more, and then the balance of power holds, and then we can have detente with China. You know, we don't need to convert China to democracy or any of this kind of like George W. Bush <laughs> stuff. Forget it. We don't need to do that. We just need a balance of power. We actually do want detente in the long, in the long term. I mean, and actually, you know, people think of detente, they think of Nixon, but actually Reagan did detente too. Like, and they didn't know the Soviet Union was going to collapse, but it kind of changed its tune. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the goal that, that we really want, peace through strength. And then from a position of strength, detente and a balance of power, they have to respect our interests. And then we can trade to some extent. And I wanted to ask also about what the Biden administration is doing. You have a piece in foreign affairs right now that's really interesting, and you coupled it with a very interesting uh, thread on Twitter as well. You wrote, the Biden administration seems to agree the problem is urgent and requires action. Meantime, the best assessments indicate the U.S. military advantage in the Western Pacific continues to erode. Thus, we should expect to see action to meet this challenge, but this does not appear to be happening. There are some good things happening, but not nearly enough to meet the huge and growing challenge from China. Bear in mind, the PRC is the strongest rival we have ever faced its economy is as large as ours and that is so interesting this dichotomy between what the biden administration sort of says in public and then what's actually happening uh in in sort of substance um with our military and it raises this question of the military seems so incredibly ill-equipped to even spend the resources right now that it has uh, because we've seen it be so mismanaged. Afghanistan is a, a good reminder of that. So what can be done if we are going to fund our military at the levels it needs to be funded to confront the threat of China, um, while also ensuring that it's a, a better, more efficient, stronger military that's not focused on white rage or whatever Mark Milley says he's learning about at the moment? <laughs> I mean, no, thank you. I mean, it's it's depressing because that article I've haven't gotten any rebuttals that are serious or really at all. And I've gotten a lot of agreement from very serious people who know what they're talking about. And that depresses me because the administration has said a lot of great things. They say China's this near peer rivals, you know, unprecedented military buildup. Uh, you know, they're the priority for defense planning. Even more, they say Taiwan is the pacing scenario. They've even said they're pursuing a strategy of denial. And we owe a lot to Senator Hawley for like putting them on the record a lot in a very rigorous and careful way. I mean, a lot of that is like, because he's, you know, very consistently and rigorously like made a record of that, but like they said it, it's not like he like forced them to say that. I mean, and he's not the only one. I mean, you know, deputy secretary Hicks said it like the Reagan, um, you know, foundation that deterrence by denial was the standard. So like, it's not like we're, it's not like, it's not like they're there. It's not like they disagree. And also increasingly like a year ago when Admiral Phil Davidson, said, um, uh, you know, that there was an, a, a threat to Taiwan, serious threat to Taiwan by 2027. There were a lot of eyes rolling. A lot of, like, I think a lot of the Democrats were kind of like, oh, it's scaremongering. You know, he's out in Honolulu. He's just buttering his own bread or whatever. Uh, not, not a year later, you know, like of real Haynes, the DNI, Bill Burns, the CIA director, both of whom are like very inner circle Biden national security team have basically said it's an urgent threat. And it seems to be now kind of like conventional wisdom. So that's like what they're saying. And yet when you look, and I mean, I just looked, this is all unclassified. This is no funky stuff. Like this is like, it's not adding up. So like the actions are not meeting the words. And again, what I'm saying, what's, what's really infuriating is it's not like we need to spend an extra trillion dollars. It's like we need to spend, I don't know, something on the order of like $50 billion in the, on the right stuff. And like that is not happening. And that is really 
I mean, it's just, it's, it's like, a, it's like, a, I mean, the way I feel is like, we have a, a train coming at us. It's like totally visible. It's like one of those old cartoons where you're like, just like sitting on, and you can't like decide and you're on the train track, you're about to get run over. So I, you know, and then, and then the administration is spending like zillions of dollars on various things over the last year, year and a half, which is mind boggling. Cause like, even if you didn't like defense, I would actually think just like pure political self-interest while you were spending like trillions of dollars would lead you to just like cover down on that problem. Because maybe you're like, Oh, people like Colby are exaggerating, but they could be right. Like maybe it's like a 20% chance. So it's like, wouldn't you rationally, even if, if you're just spending these like gobsmacks of money, just like cover down on the broth, but no, they're not. They didn't, they didn't propose increase in the defense budget. And meanwhile, they're building up forces in Europe, which like, you know, these, <laughs> these administration people like John Kirby saying that they can walk and chew gum at the same time. It just like drives me absolutely crazy. It's so <laughs> profoundly unserious and, and like so beneath the level of clarity the American people deserve. I mean, it's something that like, I'm sort of a student of cold war history and the level of strategic sophistication and discussion that the United States government put out publicly was like an order of magnitude above. And like that, like two orders of magnitude about this, these Kirby kind of comments, which are just laugh. I mean, they would be laughable if they weren't so terrible, but it's like, it's, that's not happening either. And so, you know, this is where we are. Um, the problem is solvable, although we are pushing the limits. I mean, if the Chinese, you know, there's sort of o pretty open talk now that 2027 might be like the, the, the late game. I mean, if, if Xi Jinping thinks he's, you know, going to do it by 2027, maybe he decides to do it, you know, earlier, maybe he decides to do it, you know, under this administration or in the transition period, who knows, right? But like, I just, we are way past the time where we should be dithering, where we should be. And, and again, to get back to the sort of new right sort of crowd, like this is not like the best thing is let's not test out some theory about what China is going to be like or how little you need for deterrence. Like this is where you just want to make really sure. Like, and then and this is the other thing, sorry to go on. But no. you know, it's Chinese, like the Chinese company, like, you know, people say the Chinese Communist Party, but like, you know, I've spent time in China over the years. Like, this is a, this is, this is a nation. I mean, it's led by a political elite. In some sense, it's like, seems to be represented by Xi Jinping, even though he's a dictator. Th that is like, you know, th there's a famous uh, line that Mao Zedong said when he proclaimed the People's Republic in, I think, February of 1949. He said, China has stood up. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that's so great about America and, you know, that's so central to our identity is our intense patriotism. The Chinese are also we, we like to call it when other people are patriotic nationalists, but like they're super patriotic. They feel like they've been on the down and outs and they've been disrespected for a long time. And, you know, that's a powerful force. They, they mean to assert their power and their influence. And that's just human behavior. They're a lot richer and more powerful in the world than they were. And they're, they're, they're going to act like it. That, that, to me, that's just conservative. It's sort of realist. Like, let's not expect people to behave differently than human beings have behaved since like, I don't know, we got out of caves, you know? So like, <laughs> that's, let's not, let's not take a chance. Let's, let's present a deterrent that shows Xi Jinping that he will fail. That, because that worked against Mao Zedong, who was like one of the worst human beings who ever lived. So like, I think it'll work against Xi Jinping. And that raises the question of why, you know, what could possibly explain this disconnect? Because you just laid out all of the different factors that could be motivating or should be uh, logically motivating the Biden administration's response here uh, from the politics of it, just very simply to the substance of it. 
And it's interesting. I mean, there are indications China's economy is kind of stuttering in some ways. Um, and our own economy is in ve- is very much intertwined. And that does seem to be perhaps one explanation for why uh, the Biden administration is is hesitant to go fully in on this. But maybe that's wrong. Bridge, from your perspective, what is it? Um, you know, as we're talking about military strategy and, and funneling more resources into tackling this prog- problem, even the, the $50 billion you mentioned, um, it, it does seem to me strange that when our economies are this closely coupled, although there's some things that have been happening on that front, um, it seems like there are plenty of economic levers as well. And the Biden administration just doesn't seem to be doing any of this, really. Well, let me answer the second one because it's a critical point. So my view is that economic leverage is very difficult to turn into like really significant political outcomes. And like, look at our record of using economic sanctions. I mean, we've had a blockade on Cuba or whatever embargo on Cuba for whatever, 60 years now, 65 years, something like that. And it's had very little discernible impact. I mean, even after the Soviet Union collapse, we've had sanctions on North Korea, the sanctions on Iran had limited utility, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, China's finding that, too. It's actually finding that its own economic sanctions are not that effective and in many cases backfire, like in the case of Australia right now and India. What does work to coerce people is, as Mao Zedong put it, power comes out of a barrel of a gun, is like direct lethal force or the threat thereof. And so um, you know what that means is that actually that makes me kind of relatively sanguine about economic engagement with China and but but very worried about the military balance because basically like if China can use its military to you know take over Taiwan to cow the Philippines and Vietnam and ultimately isolate Japan and get it to fall into line i think that could work i don't think it will work for china to um, you know, cut off trade with Japan because it, it, also economic sanctions like that are very difficult to like make super advantageous. It's not going to it's not going to work. So the good news is that actually I don't think we need the drastic degree of decoupling that some people do. I mean, we may have to get there, I guess. But like to your point, I mean, there was a Wall Street Journal article today about how the Commerce Department is just basically seems to be rubber stamping almost all technology transfer exports to China, which leads me and, you know, the decoupling data, I, it's a little bit mixed and I'm not an economist, but like, it's pretty clear that our econo- economies remain deeply intertwined. To me, that's actually okay. But what it means is like, if China uses its military to take over Taiwan, forget about using our economic leverage to get them to, to, to give up. I mean, A, they're going to be at that point, they're not going to give up over that, even if we could do them a lot of pain. B, Xi Jinping can like shut down the entire city of Shanghai for weeks on end and people kind of have to deal with it. So like, what are they going to do internally? See, like they can do immense damage shots. I mean, Tucker was saying the other night that um, they produce like all of our Tylenol and like most of our Advil and our penicillin and stuff like that. So like they have food and energy shortages, but, you know, we're in a glass house. So 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 long story short, that, that the economic stuff I tend to think is like once we get the military balance right, we will be able to negotiate that stuff from a position of strength. The way I think about it is like cops in a neighborhood. Like if you're in a dangerous neighborhood, that's all, all you're worried about is law and order. But once you get law and order right, then you can think about zoning, what your park looks like, your school, the swimming pool, et cetera, right? Like you can kind of negotiate that stuff from a position of strength or safety. So this is, this is but, that, but, but by the same token, it makes the military balance all the more central. And um, 
to your point about why they're not doing it's a mystery to me actually like i actually i mean to your point like i or what i was saying i think it's in their political self-interest i mean if we lose a war over Taiwan, that's going to be terrible, like geopolitically for our national interest, but also politically. I mean, go back to the 1950s. Why did the, all that the McCarthy stuff happen? It happened because of uh, the fall of China to the communists. And like, I'm not, I don't want McCarthyism back. I hate McCarthyism. I hate what it's analog that exists today. But like, there's going to be immense political consequences to, you know, essentially the most decisive, important defeat in American history. That's what it's going to be. I mean, we've never lost a war that was truly central to, you know, the strategic situation. I mean, Vietnam was very pain, immensely painful for us as a, as a society and as a people, but it was essentially a peripheral conflict. The, the, the decisive theater was in Europe and to a lesser degree in Northeast Asia. This would not be true. This would be a decisive defeat in the central theater. So, like, I, I don't. I don't know what they're doing. I, I, that's part. That's why I wrote the. Actually, kind of why I wrote the piece was to like smoke them out a little bit. Like, what is going on here, people? Like, <laughs> you know. No, absolutely. Um, it's confounding. There just, just seems to be really no explanation for it. And uh, uh, on that front, um, you also write in the foreign affairs article that we're not pressing our allies to do more. And I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, wh what do you think explains, first of all, which allies, I mean, obviously Japan, um, how should we be treating those conversations and those, uh, those strategies? And what explains why the Biden administration is not pressing our allies to do more? Well, I mean, like we can't, so we, we neither can nor should bear the ridiculously disproportionate load of the, our, the, the defense of our alliance network that we do now. And by the way, we didn't do that in the Cold War. We were much tougher on our allies. Like, I mean, fundamentally to me, an alliance is, is more like, I mean, the analogy I use is like a, a close private business partnership. I don't know if you're an accounting firm or a small law firm or whatever, you know, the personal integrity and loyalty and, you know, there's sort of non-business or non-instrumental elements are very strong. But at the end of the day, you're in like a common concern and you're expected to do your, you have like a fiduciary duty to your partners. And if you're not, then things need to change and there needs to be some tough conversations. And it's that kind of spirit that I think, and I think that was like, I don't think like Dwight Eisenhower was like, I mean, President Biden calls them like sacred. I mean, that's weird. Well, first of all, like <laughs> politics isn't sacred at all, right? The sacred is like, that's like, you know, the first is, you know, like this, that, that like separation of church and state is a fraught way of, but, you know, but basically that like, that, that, that we don't, we don't mix the, pol the political and the sacred, right? First of all, second of all, like that's a foreign country. Like this, if there's a sacred duty to Americans or it's to Americans, right? So like, and I don't think that, that was certainly not the attitude of like Eisenhower or Marshall or Nixon or, you know, Kissinger or these people who were, you know, the Dean Acheson, like they were not, they were not like, you know, maudlin kind of like, you know, violence playing sort of thing. This was hard nosed stuff, right? This was serious. Um, and so, you know, what we should be doing in the spirit of that kind of business, private business, which is like really pressing, uh, especially the ones that are powerful that are not doing their part and the ones that are vulnerable. So there are like about half a dozen countries that really matter. Where, you know, Japan has got, I mean, I've said this directly to Japanese repeatedly, they should triple their defense budget. Germany should meet its, I mean, bleep, bleep commitments that it's, it made under the Wales, in the Wales summit almost 10 years ago to spend 2%. I mean, it's ridiculous. And, and don't give me this stuff that it's about the Nazis because they had one of the biggest, they had the biggest military in NATO other than the United States during the Cold War when they were under direct threat. 
so basically, I mean, it's, it's not, you know, I understand why they do it. I don't admire it, but like they should, they got to change their ways. By the way, the polls are spending 5%. That's the model. You know, so if we want to laud an ally in Europe, it's, it should be Poland. Taiwan has got it. Like, I mean, if I were Taiwanese, that's, I'd want to spend 10% of my GDP on defense. I don't want to live. I don't want to be re-educated. The Chinese are openly talking about getting re-educated or re-educating these, these uh, the people on Taiwan. So it's, you know, it's crazy. So, so this is, you know, these are tough conversations, but they're business-like. And by the way, I actually do a lot of this myself. Like I make these points in writing or in person and these countries get it. They're not, they're not, they're not like this idea that they're all naive and they live in the, I mean, not really. like the Japanese government, the German government, they're very savvy. They're very sophisticated, but they, for a long time, they've been able to free ride on the Americans. And it was like, oh, you know, kudos for you, but the, the, the ride is over. Now the Biden administration is not doing that at all, which is just strategically irrational. A, because like, we don't have enough power alone to deal with all the problems in the world because there's China, but there, of course there's Russia's incredibly nasty and aggressive, Iran, North Korea, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also it's not sustainable. It's just not fair to the American people. I mean, it drives me personally crazy that I pay three three and a half percent of my income to the defense establishment. And, you know, my European counterparts, my German counterparts pay, pay barely over 1%. I mean, that's like a over 2% net gain. I mean, wow, that's a lot of money. Like mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I'm willing to do it, but like you, I really, it really makes me unhappy, you know, and I think it's profoundly unfair. And I'm in a better position than a lot of Americans. So like, I mean, all the more, but I'm trying to think of their benefit. That's my first, you know, my first and, and last thought. And it's like, that's totally unfair. So, but also at some point, if something's deeply unfair, it's probably not going to be politically sustainable. So it's like they, they should really do that. But of course, I think we know why the Biden administration is doing that. It's all this rules-based international order and allies are so important and the high fives and Biden photo ops in the you know Bavarian Alps and stuff like that. And that's just like a sugar high. I mean, frankly, it's kind of a political sugar high and it's deeply ephemeral. I actually don't think it's even fair to our allies. Like I think they're being unfair to the Poles and the Balts by suggesting that we will provide a level of defense commitment over the long term that we cannot sustain because we don't have a military that's large enough. And I think we should remain in and committed to NATO, but it's going to have to be a different arrangement. Um, so that's the sort of, that's my, that's my mindset. And I think that that's like, I think we could, again, we can go back to like the way that, I mean, Reagan himself, Nixon, Lyndon Johnson, Eisenhower, they all put this kind of pressure on, on our allies. So it's not, it's not, it's just something we've gotten out of practice with. Last question, Bridge, with Pelosi's visit somewhat in the rearview mirror now to Taiwan, uh, are there any lessons we should pull about the Biden administration's and, and maybe even the Democratic Party's stance towards China, towards Taiwan, that were elucidated by the, I think, just clear mess? Nobody really knew what was happening between the administration and the Speaker of the House. Um, is there anything that, that stands out to you as a lesson or, or something that tells us about, you know, what's going on with the Biden administration from that visit now that it's, uh, you know, a couple of weeks in the rearview mirror? Well, I mean, the good news is that I think that, you know, there's a substantial degree of bipartisan agreement that China is a major threat and a big problem. It's not universal, but like, you know, that's one thing maybe that, you know, Republicans agree with Speaker Pelosi on. Um, so that's good. It, it, but that agreement is fairly superficial because, you know, we shouldn't be spiking the football over that because it's like, oh, well, we've now recognized that the largest economy in the world that's run by a Marxist Leninist dictator with a huge and, you know, peacetime military buildup is a threat. Okay. Like the, right. That's, that's why, I, you know, I'm kind of like, 
we, we got to measure ourselves against the problem, not against our, you know, our, ourselves. The, the problem, so, you know, I mean, it depends on the Democrats, obviously, but, you know, Democrats on the Armed Services Committee tend to be a lot more, um, you know, uh, realistic, I would say, about the military balance and, you know, others that are more realistic about the economic piece. You know, to me, Speaker Pelosi's visit was just a, a, a sort of an encapsulation of, you know, frankly, like speak loudly and carry a small stick kind of dynamic, which is like not what we want to do. It's the opposite, um, which is like, you know, kind of peacocking uh, in front of like the big guys and like not being prepared. I used the example. I don't know if you remember this movie, you're probably too young, but like Apollo four, which is, which is the one where the Soviet guy, Dolph Lundgren, but there's a big scene at the beginning or it's from near the beginning where Apollo Creed, you know, is Rocky's good friend. He's like dressed in the American flag. He does this whole dance. He's like talking smack and like, you know, making all these, you know, big, you know, scene before the fight and like, Dolph Lundgren, Soviet characters, just like all business getting ready. And then Dolph Lundgren kills Apollo Creed in the ring. And that's like kind of how I feel like we are right now, which is, you know, we're, you know, and then there was another, the Markey delegation. I mean, seriously, really? Like, I mean, wow, we're really going to double down on this approach. So this is, the, and I think, I think there's a, I think there's a, a logical or it's sort of semi-logical logic behind it because like jake sullivan wrote something um with this guy hal brands a couple of years ago and it's sort of in response to something i'd written that was basically arguing that the, the competition with china is more about soft power and international institutions and economic influence and like all that kind of blah 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 and it's like if you thought that then it leads to it, it helps explain a lot of their behavior like they're really focused on the who or whatever you know and um they're not so worried about the military and, and that kind of thing i think that was position was like maybe plausible even though i think wrong five years ago but today you have to be kind of you have to be delusional i mean almost yeah. like look at look at Look at what the Chinese military is doing around Taiwan and look like we, they're building up their nuclear arsenal. Like the reason they're doing that, I would bet a lot of money is because they're preparing for a war with America. That, that's, that's why you would do what they're doing. So it's like, I don't even give, I don't give that much credence, but I think that's the, that's like the sort of air they breathe is that it's like, Ooh, yeah, you're, it's kind of reactionary maybe. And like sort of simplistic to be thinking that like we need to have enough like missiles and like ships and planes like ready. That's sort of like, Ooh, that's, you know, it's like the infamous carry line after Putin went into Crimea. Oh, that's just a 19th century thing or whatever. And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> apparently the 19th century is back because like, you know, Xi Jinping thinks that power comes out of the barrel of a gun too. So, you know, but at this rate, I'm, I'm very worried. I'm like, that's, that's the problem. So I, I hope I, I I'm hoping that these points I'm making are, you know, push push enough change so that we can like be strong enough to avoid the war. But I'm I'm just I'm very worried. It's almost as though we have not, in fact, reached the end of history. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, yeah, definitely not, definitely not. I mean, in fairness, the, the Fukuyama's actual argument, although Fukuyama is yeah. a great thinker, he he's kind of gone crazy on some of the stuff. It's sad to see, actually, but um it's a more he actually he actually i actually asked him about this a few years ago i ran into him and i was like you know i pointed out that that they, he actually anticipates wars at the end of history but they're different kinds of wars right but i think right. i think xi jinping and, and putin are definitely not 
you know, they're, they're, they're definitely not at the end of history. Joe Biden might be and his, his minions, but you know, it's like, <laughs> that's exactly know. it. Right. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. Well, Elbridge Colby principal at the marathon initiative, also author of strategy of denial coming out in paperback next month. Make sure to grab a copy of that. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Emily. It's really a pleasure to be with you and the Federalists and your listeners. Absolutely. Well, make sure to give uh, Bridge a follow over on Twitter. He's at Elbridge Colby. Make sure to pick up that book. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. You got me right.